Welcome to Hang Your Hat, ideas that are close to home. This is episode seven. How's the cooling coming along? Of all the multinational tax evading global conglomerates that dominate a single industry and use a mind boggling amount of natural resources to do it, IKEA is my favorite. In this episode, I dig a bit into the history of the furniture megastore, divulge some of its dark secrets, and discuss why, despite its failings, I still love the store. I will also review its new and much lauded 2017 PS line and talk about a recent accolade that we should all be excited about. Since this episode is full of Swedish words and names and I do not speak Swedish, I want to apologize in advance for my atrocious pronunciation. Believe it or not, I am trying my best to get it right. For the first time since 2014, IKEA has come out with a new PS collection. 21 designers collaborated with IKEA to make 60 new products, ranging from furniture to drink mixes. According to IKEA, this new line was made for the fiercely independent who give convention a wedgie. That's actual copy from their website, give convention a wedgie. I think it's pretty clear that they are targeting millennials, particularly those that are living in transient or shared conditions. As a result, most of the furniture is small and portable and looks pretty unconventional. For example, the collection is a love seat that is made from two strapped together corner seats constructed from a metal grid covered with 36 pillows. It looks like metal outdoor furniture covered in an angry pointy cloud. I think it is safe to say that I'm not a fan of this particular piece of furniture, but I can see how it might be really good for the people for people that move around a lot. The fact that it can be separated into two smaller pieces means that it could fit in multiple home layouts, including ones that don't have enough room for a love seat. The metal frame is durable enough to survive several moves, and it looks like it would be a lot lighter weight than a traditional wooden upholstery love seat. And the fact that it can be broken into pieces makes it easier for a single person to move, and easier to carry upstairs or fit through a narrow doorway. Even though I'm not a fan of this piece, it really is good design for the target audience. There's also a chair that is covered in a mesh fabric that I am a fan of. It looks fantastic. The chair has a metal frame and a wooden seat with the mesh fabric that forms the body of the chair stretched over the frame. The chair is mostly a horseshoe shape that's a bit squeezed in on the sides forming their armrests. It also has a raised back that sort of flows into the sides of the chair. My overall impression of it is that it looks like a really comfortable and expensive office guest chair. I'm also a fan of the collection's rocking chair. It is shaped like half a sphere suspended on rockers, kind of like a suspension bridge almost. Firebeard said it looked like one of the wheeled stand-up chairs the kids had before they could walk, and it kind of does, but I still kind of like it. It looks like it might be a great place to cuddle up and read a book. Or plot an evil scheme. It looks like it might be a good supervillain lounger too. There are a couple things in the collection that I think are just duds. The coffee table looks like a short folding TV tray made from metal. It is at best the size of a side table. 
If they had called it a side table, I might have been able to get behind the design, but as a coffee table, it really misses the mark for me. They also have a USB-powered flashlight in a cage. That doesn't make any sense at all. I think the idea is that it is a lamp that can be powered by your laptop or a car charger, so you don't need to be in a house to use it. But it just seems like a flashlight with portability issues. My absolute favorite from the collection is a 3-in-1 self-watering plant pot set. It is a three-piece set that consists of a metal plant stand, an off-white waterproof outer pot, and an unglazed terracotta inner pot. The metal plant stand cradles the outer pot so that it's suspended above the floor, which looks really nice and keeps your floor from being ruined. The outer pot acts as a water reservoir. You fill it up from a hole on the side, and the inner pot solely sucks, sucks up the water, keeping the plant moist. I love this thing. It is attractive and useful and practical. After my next trip to Ikea, my house will be filled with them. The collection has a lot of other really great pieces and several not-so-great pieces that I plan to cover in detail on the blog. For now, I'm just going to mention a few. There is a very pretty emerald green knit throw with a wavy texture, some smoky glass vases that would work with a lot of different decorating styles, a room divider that would be great to make a private space for guests when you don't have a guest bedroom, some travel mugs with a really interesting shape, and a truly bizarre lounging blanket that looks a bit like a quilted vest made for someone seven or eight feet tall. Another quick mention, around the same time that the PS collection came out, Ikea also released a bicycle. It is a belt-driven rather than chain-driven bike, which according to Ikea makes it easier for novices to work on. And it comes with quick attachment points that make it easy to add on some of their accessories, like a pull-behind trailer and panniers, which are like big square bags that fit next to the back wheels. It also comes with a 25-year warranty. I am a tiny bit of a bike snob, so I'm reserving judgment on this one until I see it in person. I have doubts that the belt drive will really work that well, especially under a load, but I hope that I'm wrong and that this is a really good, expensive transportation option for someone who needs it. IKEA's founder, Ingvar Kamprad, was born in Småland, Sweden in 1926, and seems to have become a businessman at the point of exiting the womb. At five, he was already buying matches in bulk and selling them to his neighbors at discounted prices. And by seven, he had expanded into other markets, nearby towns selling things like Christmas cards and pencils. Kamprad started IKEA in 1943 at the age of 17, using money that his father had given him for doing well in school, despite his dyslexia. Initially, the company sold things like pens, picture frames, and watches at reduced prices. But in 1948, he'd expanded the line to include furniture produced by local manufacturers. By 1951, IKEA was already producing the IKEA catalog, much like the IKEA catalog we know today. And in 1953, the first IKEA furniture showroom was opened. The showroom was in response to a price war with an IKEA competitor. Since people could see the quality of the IKEA products in the showroom, buyers could make their furniture choice based on both cost and quality rather than just cost alone. This proved to be a good move for IKEA, and their sales continued to grow. IKEA began the move to manufacturing their own flat pack furniture in 1956, 
after competitors encouraged furniture suppliers to boycott IKEA. In my opinion, this is when IKEA as we know it today was really born. Soon after, in 1958, the first IKEA store, like the IKEA stores that we know now, was open in Amhart, Sweden. The brand really took off from there. The first IKEA restaurant was opened in 1960, and the first store outside of Sweden was opened in 1963. IKEA finally reached U.S. markets in 1985. IKEA has actually been fairly slow to expand. They seem to want to get things right the first time and are willing to slow their expansion to do it. For example, it took six years to open its first store in South Korea. Their strategy seems to work, though. When they expand, they do it right, selling a mass-produced product internationally, while still somehow catering to the needs of the local market. Now there are more than 318 IKEA stores in more countries than Walmart. And additional expansion into the emerging markets like China and India is still very much on the agenda. IKEA's net income has increased 31% in the last five years, up to $4.5 billion. Why is IKEA so successful? Its model is based on volume. It produces a lot of the same items and sells them in many different markets. That lets them get lower prices from their suppliers and in turn charge their customers lower prices. The more volume, the greater the discount becomes which is why many IKEA favorites have actually become cheaper over the years, despite inflation. For example, as of 2015, one Billy bookcase was sold every 10 seconds. That kind of volume allowed the company to lower their 2015 price by an average of 1% below the 2014 price. The Billy is actually so ubiquitous a product that Bloomberg has created a Billy bookcase index, as an indicator of the fiscal strength of each of the countries they're sold in. In case you were wondering, in 2015, the latest year I could find, Slovakia was the cheapest, followed by several other European countries that use the euro. The price reflected decreasing prices in the eurozone at that time. Egypt was the most expensive, reflecting rampant price growth in the country. IKEA's success has not allowed them to escape controversy, however. We probably all remember the horse meat meatball scandal of 2013. IKEA was, of course, not the only company impacted. After investigation by the European Union, food adulteration was found to be far more widespread than had previously been thought. However, IKEA seemed to become the name that was most closely associated with the scandal. IKEA also uses a really absurd amount of natural resources, particularly wood, all of my sources differed slightly in the amount of wood they said IKEA uses, but most agreed that it was just about 1% of the world's commercial wood supply every year, and that IKEA is likely, at least in the top five of commercial wood consumers in the world. Probably higher. Critics argue that given the lifespan of most IKEA products, that using that much wood is a terrible waste of natural resources. I think that this argument has some validity. Using that much wood does seem environmentally irresponsible. However, IKEA is currently attempting to mitigate its impact. As of last year, about 40% of the wood they used came from either recycled sources or Forest Stewardship Council certified forests. Forest Stewardship Council certification means that the wood is sourced in an environmentally friendly, socially responsible, and economic, economically viable way. 
It's a huge step towards sustainability. IKEA plans to use at least 50% sustainable wood this year and 100% by 2020. What I think is really important here is that since IKEA is so big and it's part of the consumer wood market share is so huge that it's moved toward more sustainably harvested wood could actually impact the entire consumer wood market. No supplier is going to want to miss out on a large portion of the market share, and that may mean a greater move toward sustainable wood production overall. IKEA also used East German prisoners as slave labor to reduce costs in the late 70s and early 80s. In 2012, the practice came to light after an independent audit by Ernest & Young. The Ernest & Young report said that while IKEA had had a policy of visiting production facilities to control working processes, access to East German suppliers had been restricted. In 2012, the company made a public apology for it. Peter Betzel, the head of IKEA Germany, stated, It is not and never was acceptable to be selling products made by political prisoners, and I would like to express my deepest regret for this to the victims and their families. Betzel further stated that the company had received tip-offs that it had been using forced labor, but it had taken insufficient action against the claims, and that since 2000, it has had a strict system of checks and balances in place. The company now does over 1,000 control checks every year. Anita Gossler, an East German prisoner that was forced to make goods for other companies, stated that there were many companies involved in this practice. They should all be named and shamed. IKEA has put its head above the parapet and admitted its guilt, but there are plenty of others who should also be approached for compensation. She also said that she welcomed IKEA's announcement that it planned to donate funds to research projects on forced labor in the former GDR. This accusation about forced German labor came at about the same time that the company was accused of using Cuban political prisoners for the same purpose. It turned out that the Cubans had made sample goods for the company, but the company never actually sold goods made by Cuban prisoners, and that IKEA was unaware of any involvement by Cuban prisoners. There have also been allegations that Ingvar Krampard had Nazi ties. In 1994, Krampard's Nazi ties initially came to light when the letters of Per Engdahl, the leader of the New Swedish movement and supporter of Nazi Germany, but not Nazism, came to light. The letters showed that as a teen, Krampard had given money to and recruited for the organization, and that Krampard was friends with Engdahl. Then, in 2011, a book by the Swedish journalist Elizabeth Asbrink showed that Krampard had been a member of the fascist group the Swedish Socialist Union, or SSS, at the time that he founded IKEA. There is even some evidence that he recruited for the organization, although it is unclear how official that capacity might have been. In 1998, Krampard made a public apology for his Nazi ties, calling them a part of my life which I bitterly regret, youthful sins, and the biggest mistake of his life. Most at the time seemed to believe that Krampart was truly remorseful, and most groups, including the Anti-Defamation League, accepted his apology. In addition, Asprink's 2011 book, And in Weinerwald the Trees Remain, the book that brought further Nazi ties to light, also details Krampart's long-term friendship with a Jewish refugee that came to work on Krampart's family farm, and later was a member of the team that launched IKEA. 
Perhaps this friendship helped show Crampard the error of his ways. Back in 1998, Crampard stated that the IKEA he created is based on democratic principles and embraces a multicultural society. I think support for that vision of IKEA was given on January 30th of this year, when IKEA came out with a letter in support of their immigrant employees in the U.S. after the U.S. travel ban restricted movement of people from seven primarily Muslim countries into the U.S. Last, but certainly not least, IKEA is a tax dodger. Technically, IKEA is a charity. In 1982, Ingvar Krampart gave his ownership stake in IKEA to the Stichting Inca Foundation, which is a Dutch charity. The charity runs IKEA through Inca Holdings, a subsidiary of the Stichting Inca Foundation that operates as a for-profit company. As of 2006, the charity had an estimated endowment of $36 billion dollars. But it wasn't very charitable in its giving. The foundation has been giving Sweden's Lund Institute of Technology 1.6 million euros a year, which is a lot, but is very little in comparison to the foundation's gigantic endowment. So why the complicated corporate structure? Since IKEA is owned by a charitable organization, all of its profits are tax-free. And guess who is in charge of the Stitchking Inca Foundation? It is a board headed by Camprad. IKEA, as you probably think of it, is actually made of many companies and subsidiary companies with an extremely complex organizational structure that makes it difficult to tell who owns what and who benefits from the company's success. The result is very little tax being paid on a huge amount of profit and it appears to be completely legal. So why, after the horse meat, huge resource usage, forced labor, Nazi affiliations, and tax dodging, do people still like IKEA? I think there are two reasons. For one, times are tough. Millennials earn, on average, 20% less than their parents did at the same age. Many have to stay at home with their parents to make ends meet, And those that do get out on their own don't have a lot of extra money for furniture. Low-cost furniture suppliers like IKEA make it possible for a millennial to both move out of their parents' basement and have a bed to sleep on in their new place. That's a powerful motivator to forget a company's past misdeeds. The second reason is a little less concrete. I think that, for the most part, IKEA really do seem to be trying to learn from their mistakes and do better. Whether that's from an inherent desire to make the world a better place, or because it's good for sales, the end result is that you can feel okay about buying an IKEA product. While your purchase probably isn't making the world a better place, it probably isn't making the world a worse place, and that is not something that you can often say at a similar price point. On the environmental front, IKEA is working towards sustainability. They have switched to all LEDs, make high-efficiency appliances and low-water-use faucets. They are working toward completely sustainable wooden cotton. They've cut out polystyrene and are cutting out palm oil. They are investing in renewable energy, reducing carbon emissions, increasing efficiency, and reducing waste. Many of their stores are at least partially solar-powered, and they have begun to offer solar panels to consumers and test markets. 
Half of the food they serve is from local sources, and most of the fish they serve is sustainably sourced. And they are working toward all of their products coming from renewable, recyclable, or recycled sources in the near future. They are also working toward social justice. 48% of their managers are women. They are enforcing a code of conduct for their suppliers that enforces things like good working conditions, and recently they've been employing Syrian refugees that have had difficulty finding jobs. In addition, the Stitching Inca Foundation, IKEA's nonprofit parent company, has committed to providing additional support to communities negatively impacted by climate change and providing clean drinking water. However, I think their most important contribution to social justice recently is the Better Shelter. It's a flat-pack home for refugees that just won the prestigious Beasley Design of the Year Award for 2016. The Better Shelter is a lightweight, rigid polymer structure that can be set up by a team of four in a matter of hours. They sleep five, are far more durable and weatherproof than a tent, and have a solar panel on the roof that provides enough energy to power a light or charge a cell phone. In other words, it is a tenable living situation for refugees that provides a modicum of security and a sense of home. Before I go, I have a quick update from episode 6, Sweet Dreams Are Made of These. On February 2nd, just a few days after the episode aired, a new study came out in the journal Current Biology called Circadian Entrainment in the Natural Light-Dark Cycle Across Seasons and the Weekend. The study focused on how exposure to natural light, as opposed to the electrical light we are exposed to all of the time, impacts the body clock. Exposure to electrical light delays the body clock, so we go to bed late and wake up late. They wanted to find out if exposure to natural light would reset the biological clock so that a person would naturally go to sleep around sunset and wake up around sunrise. So they sent study participants camping. The participants were exposed only to natural light. No phones, no flashlights, nothing. They found that the natural light did reset the biological clock. The participants went to bed earlier and woke up earlier. It even helped prevent cases of the Mondays. So if you're in need of biological clock reset, it may be a good time to go camping. Or, failing that, at least spending a bit more time outdoors and away from screens. If you want to learn more, I will link to the study in the show notes. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please rate the show or leave a review on iTunes. Due to travel obligations, I will be back in three weeks rather than the typical two weeks. If you would like to get in touch in the meantime, please send me an email at hangyourhatpodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit the website hangyourhatpodcast.com. The Hang Your Hat Podcast is a production of jerworkingcrafts.com. That is G-E-R-W-E-R-K-E-N crafts, all one word, dot com. You can visit Your Working Crafts for DIY, home decor, crafts, tutorials, and more.